and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. This week on Raising Rare, we are speaking with Dr. Ethan Perlstein. Ethan is an in vivo biologist and entrepreneur. Since its founding in 2014, he has been the CEO of Perlara Public Benefit Corporation, the first biotech PBC that partners with highly motivated families to cure rare genetic diseases. He has been part of the Cure GPX4 scientific team from the very start. So welcome to Raising Rare. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Ethan Perlstein, who's an expert in animal models. But before we get started, Sana, how is Raghav doing? He's doing pretty good. Um, actually, we've just had a change of um, of parents, so caregivers. So my, my parents went back to India and my wife's parents are here. But this is the first time he's actually learned that people people like actually change and different people come in. So he's been reacting very differently. And in, in we're, we're learning that he's actually learned a lot more uh, about people than what we originally thought. So why don't you give us a quick introduction, Ethan? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on on the podcast. Uh, my name is Ethan Perlstein. I'm a, a biotech entrepreneur, uh, and I founded a company called Perlara back in 2014. Its purpose was to work with highly motivated families, parents like just like Sanath, and uh, and and help them on their cure odyssey. And uh, my background is as a as a PhD scientist in molecular and cell biology. And I developed an expertise in my postdoc in pharmacology, something actually called evolutionary pharmacology. So thinking about how do drugs work uh, by using simpler systems than humans to study them in, uh, even something as simple as a yeast cell, get into that. And I guess that's how I became a, an expert in, in animal modeling. I wish I was an expert in animal wrangling, but maybe that can be uh, a second career. So how did the two of you meet and start collaborating? Well, I think uh, is either an email introduction, probably. Um... It was last year's Global Genes. So I remember this because I was talking to Rohan at Global Genes last year, uh, during Global Genes, actually, he was on a phone call. And then he said, you were at Global Genes, and he said, he'll try to introduce us. But then you left before, before we could meet. So I, I, we, I, that, that's how we got an introduction. And then, and then we got it talking. And, and we, we did some work. Um, Ethan has been advising us a lot on, on you know, repurposing, uh, because we, we said that's going to be our strategy for CureGPX4. And it, it's worked out really well. Um, and I think Ethan, I haven't told you this. Um, we've just had um, uh, some reversal in skeletal abnormalities for Raghav that we've seen after repurposing for drugs since last September. Uh, and so that's surprising, uh, which we never hoped for. Uh, there's still a lot more way to go, but I guess that's, the, that's already huge. So Ethan, can you give us a little primer? You talked about animal models and what you did and, and your uh, ev- evolutionary pharmacology. I like that. Um, Give us a quick breakdown of what that is in general. 
Sure. So it's obviously not ethical to do experiments on human beings. Uh, I mean, you can to some extent in this sort of end of one uh, compassionate use context, but you really want to make informed choices if possible. So one way to do that is to, to use a surrogate or, or as we call a model and, and animal models in a lot of people's minds means mice or rodents, but actually that an animal includes even a yeast cell, which is a fungus. Uh, and of course, it includes more animals like worms or flies or fish. So you can kind of think about models, you know, as having different degrees of fidelity and different degrees of predict predictive power. Um, so in, in, I guess maybe like I'm not an engineer, but kind of was thinking about analogy before this and thought, okay, well, if you wanted to build an airplane or you make, you make a model and you can make a scaled model uh, where, where all you have to do is just sort of reduce the size of things. And in some ways in disease modeling, you can do something like, but that, you know, has some technical challenges and obviously you can't really produce a tiny little homunculus um, as your, as your model by just putting together a bunch of organoids. So at some point you have to kind of abstract away from what you're actually trying to replicate. So instead of making the exact sort of airplane, you know, model with the scaled down parts and so forth, you could imagine sort of making a Lego version. Of course, you can kind of see uh, that there's going to be a strong family resemblance between the Lego model and sort of the more accurate uh, reproduction scaled model or replica. Um, and then you could even go further sort of uh, uh, abstract away from, from the original by maybe having a paper mache model or a ball and stick model. And of course, you can see how the predictive power <laughs> uh, will sort of decay um, you know, as you go to the simpler models. But with respect to some phenomena or principles, even the simple model kind of gets things right. Um, and so I think using that premise, you can now replace those different, uh, those different sort of uh, engineering model systems with animal model systems. So the simplest one uh, that I'm going to talk about is the yeast, budding yeast. It's what you use to make, you know, a beer or a wine. Usually get it like in the little packet that says Fleischmann's, but uh, we're talking about a sort of different, you know, domesticated cousin of that version. Uh, then we can think about worms. So the next most complicated model up, um, that would be a thousand-celled organism that has neurons and has cell types, no, no, nowhere near the diversity of ours and the complexity, but you kind of get the point. Uh, then you can scale up to a fly, uh, and uh, that's still an invertebrate, but still has actually quite a sophisticated brain, enough to keep a lot of fly neuroscientists busy. And then you can go to your, your first vertebrate uh, in this kind of series of, of what are called traditional model organisms, and that's the zebrafish. Um, and, and then, of then you get to mammals and everyone's, as I said, kind of familiar with mouse models and kind of assumes that animal means mouse uh, when, when I just sort of explained that animal has very broad sweep across evolution. And, and so in terms of medical research, it's really cheap and quick to do things in a simple organism, uh, especially compared to a mouse. Uh, and so that's another virtue of doing, uh, of taking this kind of uh, long systemic view of, of, of disease modeling across animals. But I think I'll stop there because I think that's maybe a good general review. And then uh, if you need me to clarify anything or if anything was confusing, just uh, let me know. One of our most important goals on Raising Rare is to educate. In that spirit, we let Sanath ask Ethan some of the questions that he has about animal models. I know that's, that's amazing. I, I really like how you sort of contrasted that with building an airplane and the predictive power. And I, I want to spend a, a couple of minutes on the predictive power. Um, 
it took me personally a long time to really, really understand why we need why we need models. And what was even more confusing was that the predictive power cannot be determined prior to doing an experiment on the animal. Um, and so, you know, we, we sort of think about evolution, right? And, and you know, yeast and, and worms and more complex animals going on there. Um, but then we, we sort of think, yeah, the more the complexity is, you're su- 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 supposed to get more um, higher predictive power, right? And it took me a while to really understand that that's not the case. And, and it, this is an important factor for patient advocates to understand because that determines where they invest their money in. So could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, specifically, what, what question? You know, given, given, say, four animals, say, yeast, worm, zebrafish, and mouse, right? Um, if mice is going to lead to the highest predictive power, uh, then I will always invest in mice. Why do I care about other organisms? Um, is, is, that, is that a right frame of reasoning? Or um, is there a different way to think about how to choose the right animal model? Right. So in that, in that specific example, then you can kind of go down the line with the different organisms. So you can sort of start with, well, first of all, you, you're usually hoping that you have the ability to even make a mouse model, because in some cases, you, you knock out a perturbed gene and the mouse is not viable. But let's imagine a case where you do have a viable mouse model and you kind of already have done the comparison with the human disease phenotypes and you see, oh yeah, the mouse is reproducing these phenotypes and so if you have that case, then let's start with the yeast. Um, you know, obviously mice are made up of lots of individual cells. And so a yeast cell at a sort of cell level, if you're doing a comparison, you can ask, well, if you stress, are, are, the, are, the, are, are the individual mouse cells stressed out in the disease, mouse disease model as they are if you were to generate that same model in, in the yeast? Uh, and then you could do measurements of basically at the cellular level, is the same thing happening and between a yeast and a mouse and then maybe even a human cell side by side. And that can give you a sense of, okay, what kind of predictive power does the yeast have, at least with respect to the cellular stresses? Because obviously the yeast can't model what happens in more uh, at sort of more complex levels because they lack organ systems, they lack all that stuff. Okay, now let's move up to the worm. And then you can start to ask, okay, let's assume that the cellular level stress is the same across these different species. And now the worm has some phenotypes. Let's say in the, uh, this is a case where the gene regulates a behavior in both the human and the mouse. And let's say that it's a kind of, let's say it involves locomotion. Full worms can locomote. And then now all of a sudden, because yeast couldn't do that, but worms can, now you can ask, well, is there a phenotype that the worm displays at a behavioral level that may not be exactly like the behavioral defect in a mouse or human, because that may depend on a certain organ or a certain tissue that just isn't present in the worm, but sort of at a, for lack of a better word, at a meta level, right? Is there sort of, uh, for example, a dopamine problem happening that's driving this behavior, even if the, uh, the surface behavior is, 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 is not quite comparable between the worm and, and, the, and the higher organisms? That's another way you can start to understand, hmm, maybe the worm will have some predictive power. You can do the same exercise with the fly, which is now capable of a lot more complicated behaviors, um, and then so so on and so forth. So I think that's how you start to, as you say, right now empirically determine what the predictive value is of each of these mo- mo- models are. And that again assumes a, ni- a nice ideal case where you have a robust, viable mouse model that reproduces, you know, all of the disease, and you also have the ability to measure the disease in, in human cells of, of various types. So you can at least have that benchmark and say, well, what, what is, um, you know, how are these 
uh, simpler and cheaper animals comparing to the mouse. And then back to your original point, well, if you can get the same answer with a worm or a fly that you can get with a mouse, you know, X percent of the time, 90% of the time, then doesn't it make sense to make the allocation to the simpler organism? So yeah, sorry, sorry for that. I wanted to get clarification on what you were asking, but I hopefully laid it out here with these four examples. No, that, that, that makes it, that makes it, that makes it very clear. Um, in in my mind, I'm asking because you know if um, if if I have a child with a mutation with a specific gene, um, and I'm I'm just starting out uh, to find a treatment for that child, um, what animals do I have to care about? Um, and I, I think this is um, kind of understanding that not all animals are made equal um, is a predicate to then answering the question, what animals should I care about? So that's that's sort of why I started talking about the predictive power first. Um, and so uh, what, what do you think in this case um, should a patient foundation do? Like, what, So given that they are just starting out and, and assume that this is sort of a, um, a, a new disease and, and maybe some a couple of researchers are working on it, um, there's uh, maybe maybe an animal model uh, or a mouse model that, that exists somewhere. Um, now they're they have raised some money and they're planning on investing this in in creating more models. Now, what animals do they do they have to care about, and how do they think about it? Yeah, I, I definitely want to help people almost design a rubric here so they can just go through the exercise because it's it's sort of a set of you know uh, sort of forks in the road and there are kind of dead ends depending on your gene or biology and so it's it's a very knowable thing. So first thing you have to do is you say, well, is my gene uniquely human? Is my is the disease gene in question uniquely human? Right. In other words, is this gene only evolved in in humans? It's not even present in chimpanzees or other, and that tends to be some of the time, but usually quite rare. Um, more often than not, the gene is present in other organisms. And the best cases are where you have kind of uh, full, full conservation. So, you know, back all the way over a billion years to sort of the simplest uh, eukaryotes. And of course, there's some pathways that are conserved in plants as well. Um, but let's limit our kind of discussion to, to, to animals. So the, so the first thing you kind of do in this decision tree is ask, well, where is, where is my disease gene? Um, is it even present in some recognizable way as a, as a distant cousin in these simple organisms? And that's sort of a bioinformatics or, or, or you know, that's something you can just determine without doing any experiments. Then the second sort of step is, well, what experiments have already been done? And that, you know, taking approaches like Medicanrin and others that, that might have developed, you can kind of use AI to your advantage to read the literature on a particular topic and then kind of give you recommendations or sort of syntheses um, of insight. So, um, you know, you can run the exercise of, okay, the genes present in all these different organisms and what has is there anything known about what happens if you mess with the gene? Has anyone even messed with the gene in a way that resembles uh, what happens in the human case? Has anyone actually even explicitly modeled the human mutation in organism X, Y, or Z? So you can scoop up all that information uh, uh, into an AI and you can kind of spit out some insights or some recommendations. Uh, then I think, you know, if that gives you this landscape and it says, well, in your case of your disease gene, um, it looks like, you know, yeast, worm, fly, fish, and mice are all in play. And it looks like there's some basic understanding that if you mess with the gene in any of those models, you get something that's sick. Um, that's a place where you can kind of can say, okay, now how do I allocate 
you know, more investment to figure out is the mouse model, or excuse me, is, is the mouse model sufficient? Do I have to make one that's specific to my child's mutation or can I use the one that's already made? Um, do, I, do I invest in a worm or a fly? Is the worm require more exploratory research versus the fly where there's a much clearer path to a disease phenotype and a drug screen? So you have to kind of then have a bunch of, put some creative minds together I don't think AI can solve that problem yet. You have to put some, you have some organic intelligence required to then to take those syntheses and recommendations and, and, and then come up with like an allocation and say, I'm going to invest in this and I'm going to do, and it's Gantt chart, right? So you're going to invest in an activity and you're going to doing, you're going to do other parallel activities, but you're going to stagger other activities. And there'll be some activities you do that only happen if this a preceding thing happens. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, there, there should be a very clear kind of set of decision points as you decide what animals are relevant, what's known about them, what has to be done new and what's on the critical path to treatments for me. That's awesome. So it's, 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 it, the first step is to, is to do the, is to use the decision tree to sort of get a landscape of what is out there um, and then prioritize based on what is most relevant for my mission, which is, which is finding a treatment. Um, and in, in, in some cases, an animal model or even a mouse model would be sufficiently advanced enough that it can be the shortest path to a treatment. That's right. You don't have to have multiple ones, but it all depends on the on your exact case. So that that's where it's hard to have a formulaic answer. Um, but when you do get, you know, when, you, when certain when you do sort of check certain boxes in a certain order, then that does sort of yeah indicate you should probably go down a certain path first, um, like you know, run with the mouse if it works. Right, exactly. And, and the, 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 another point that you brought up that was interesting was um, around creating a mouse with the specific mutation of your child. Um, and, and maybe let's just talk about that a little bit, because for the other animals, um, we tend to either um, silence the gene altogether, which is just essentially remove the gene and see what happens to the animals, uh, because they're more simple organisms. Um, and when it comes to mice, there is this um, nuance of um, not only sort of removing the gene as a more extreme case, but then adding your specific mutation that you care about to the mice and seeing what happens there. Um, so could you could you just talk about what that means? Um, why would you do that? Um, and, and how to reason about whether that's uh, necessary or not? Well, to be clear, you can use CRISPR uh, gene editing technology to, to program mutations even into simple organisms. So you can do that. In fact, it's easier and faster than it is in a mouse. So that's not, the, that's not what differentiates them. What really sort of is the question is, are the models that are generated, uh, depending on their genotype or what, what actual mutation you're, were, were generated, um, how do you know that that speaks for all the other mutations? Even though it looks like it was made by a scalpel, is it based, is the consequence the same as if a sledgehammer hit it? And if that's the case, then maybe you don't need to make your own specific custom avatar. Um, I mean, there could be other. No, that that's not a sweeping statement. There could be there could be other reasons why you want to do it, even if what I said is true. But that's one way to think about it. Then then there are cases where you know that there are mutations that break the gene in different ways. Um, and so like with CF cystic fibrosis, that's a known case where there's multiple classes of mutations because we know that uh, a mutation of a certain type will cause this type of functional you know, deficit, but, but other parts of the protein would still otherwise work. And in that case, 
you, if there is evidence that there are different classes of mutation, uh, even in a loss of function disease, there it does actually behoove you to make a patient avatar because then you 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 want to know exactly what the consequences of of your specific mutation are because that would imply sort of different therapeutic outcomes. In the case of dominant mutations, you almost always want to create a custom version because, the, as you were saying, the, the genetics, the, the techniques of genetics are really good at killing gene function and removing gene function. But dominant is, this, is an example where you have to put that, you have to put something back in, even a single change. So that's a case where you do want to um, make your own mutation. But even in that instance, it could be a case where even you know there are different mutations, but they all end up causing the same kind of protein misfunction or downstream effects. And in that case, over time, as you build up a database of experience, you can start to maybe predict or get a handle on if a new mutation you know, conforms to the way another mutation behaves or whether it starts to have its own unique function. And in the limit, there are going to always be kids who have like a, a, a rare mutation that does something that doesn't look like any other cataloged mutations. And so you, they, therefore, you have to make a, a bespoke model. Not all mutations are the same. Um, but you could group some mutations into a class. So um, if, if there are, say, 10,000 mutations in a gene that are potentially possible, uh, then there might be four classes of mutations that we really care about among them. Um, and so that's the next level of abstraction to think about. Um, and, and going even further than that, whether these four classes create the same effect or not. Um, and and if, we, if we have some evidence based on the literature that these four classes will have the same effect on the protein or function, then we probably don't need one model for each class. We could then have one model that represents all the classes together. Um, and that could be either a complete um, killing of the gene, or it could be just one mutation of a gene that is representative of everything else about, about the mutations. Um, and, and I think the, 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 the interesting aspect here is some of this can already be collected from the literature if something has, if someone has worked on the protein, um, because, you know, once it's, it's all, it's, it's all dependent on how the protein structure changes, right? How, how does the mutation affect the protein structure uh, determines what class this belongs to and which determines what types of models do you really care about? Um, and then taking a step further from there, it's, it's what phenotype does this mice exhibit given uh, the model? And is it close to the humans or not? Uh, I think that that is the interesting aspect that that most patient foundations kind of care about. Where where does it is it therapeutically relevant? It is, but but that's why I think ultimately uh, we need to have some kind of you know rubric here where people can just kind of go through this checklist and just determine where they fall out and they help people realize that they're not you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they have to go through this decision matrix. Like it's 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 one that everyone goes through and and there's there is a path for you. Maybe we should we should make this decision matrix into like a, a a web app that people can just like click and navigate. But part of part of it is people need to understand this language and all those steps that you're talking about throughout the biology in order to use that app. Unless the app right. is so intuitive, which just given the subject matter, it may not not be. Um, people will, will still struggle with. Well, hold it. If the gene's wrong, why don't I just fix the gene? But it's like the gene's wrong, but it creates a protein that doesn't work, but we can compensate for that somehow, or we can block that protein, or we can accentuate the, the other copy. Um, there's lots of strategies here. So I actually wanted to get into how do you, if we look ahead a bit, and you've got these models in place, gone through all this discussion, and you said, okay, here's our, here's, here's the set of models we're going to use to, to screen drugs. How does that happen? 
Well, um, you, you have to sort of find a, a partner to work with. And, you know, there are groups, uh, there are academic labs that will do this um, and that may not be able to take on every piece of this, but can take on uh, one or more models. Uh, so I'm also imagining in this process, you have a human cell model of some type uh, to kind of, you know, go along with your, your animal models because you're going to want to have validation in, across both these animal, you know, animal models, the human cell model, um, but 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 to actually operationalize it, you know, you need to work with a lab, and academic labs can uh, again tackle pieces of this, and you know they'll do it in a way where they're having graduate students or postdocs for the most part or, or research associates drive drive this work, but but those folks are working on other projects and there's other parties in the lab, and so there's a certain. Uh, cadence uh, which that that level of that kind of research happens and it may not be as as say uh, on the same uh, schedule of urgency as say the the sponsors in this case the the families that are wanting this research done then you can have kind of the the uh, you know company options and those are usually groups uh, known as you know contract research organizations um i'll pick one for example charles river which uh, i've i've helped families work with and um, you know, has has the expertise uh, usually of, of either former academic scientists or, or even biopharma scientists who can operationalize uh, these screens. And again, you know, some some of these uh, outfits can kind of do do everything, uh, and some are some are more focused, um, you know, on one type of model or another. In general, mo- there aren't that many options actually to do um, model organism screening. I mean, Perlara was sort of one of the options and there's a company Modelos out there that does it. There's been others that have focused on a fish or a fly here and there sporadically, but, um, there really aren't groups doing this, uh, systematically, unfortunately. Um, and most, for the most part, uh, these screens get operationalized in, in cell models. Um, but yeah, I think you 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 do have a choice here of kind of working uh, with academics, uh, and usually there these are folks that uh, the families and the foundations have probably gotten to know and gotten to trust in many ways. Um, but you could also shop these projects around certain uh, certain contract research organizations, which have the the expertise uh, and 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 usually operate on a much more uh, on a much faster timeline with very clearly spelled out milestones and deliverables. So it's interesting that my question is actually trying to get to the scientific. How do you do, make the choices of which drugs make it through and which ones don't? Um, but you gave me the, another good answer, which is how do you operationalize it? But, but I'd like to get into, you know, how do you, how do you now assess various compounds and, and, and treatments to see how they're doing in the model? What's the, what's the logic that's going on? Well, I was going to say that part actually in some ways is, is a lot simpler because what you ideally like to do is just have a library, an unbiased library of molecules. For example, you know, all, all approved drugs, maybe not every single one through a history of time, but say, you know, the vast majority of FDA approved drugs uh, and other so-called uh, uh, tool compounds that might have even gone into clinical use or practice at one time or another those collections exist and you really don't want to cherry pick in advance. You don't want to pick favorites. Although as Sanat can speak to as like a precursor to doing that unbiased screen where you kind of throw, you know, you want, you want to try everything, every vial from the archive. The other way to do it, the complement or kind of the inverse of that is you just take a few things that your, your, your analysis of the gene and other sort of uh, careful studies suggest, Hey, if we turn this knob with this, this known, you know, uh, drug, then 
well, we expect there might be some positive effect. And so you can kind of do what's called a candidate approach where you just take in a very biased way a few molecules that you have really good reason to believe should be doing something to improve your, your disease state. And then you just, you just try them. And if they work, they work. And if they don't, you don't, but you know, you'll learn something from the failures or the successes, but, but it's still sort of a precursor to doing the big screen. Cause you're probably not going to find your answer. I mean, you may find some good answers, but you're probably not going to find the, the only answers from the best things you can kind of come up based on your Intelli organic intelligence, as good as it is, you still have to uh, allow for there to be chance and serendipity. And that's why you want to do these large unbiased screens after. And I think a lot of it depends on how well you know the biology and what agents are out there to, to, to alter that biology. For my history in a pharma company, Pfizer, we would do our repurposing after something got approved and it would be what you're talking about. Okay, now what else could we use this for? And start looking at it in in various related things. Um, Zoloft was for depression, so we looked at it in PTSD. We looked at it in in manic manic depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, um, and you just kept adding on as you realize this same biology is causing different different uh, uh, pathologies afterwards. So this is the same thing repurposing, but it's maybe you know not not from the as close a a target you know it's it's like hey this thing's probably pretty close let's see if yeah and can... not to, and and then there's plenty even in covid like there's examples of people using the repurposing you said which is rational repurposing targeted repurposing but then the other kind the serendipitous repurposing that only happens if you have good models and if you're modeling the disease right because if because otherwise right otherwise you would have made an, a made a hypothesis and said oh i'm going to draw these two dots together but the the, the serendipity repurposing which you you want to be available to um you, yeah you you have to kind of think balanced too so what comes up in your experience what's come up after you've found something that you can repurpose how how does that move along how is it different than normal drug development? Yeah, it's different because it's super fast. And I'm kind of living the example right now. So uh, at the end of 2018, um, you know, as Polar 1.0 ended up winding down, uh, we, ended up make, we made a discovery about a Japanese drug that was approved in 1992 uh, for the treatment of diabetic neuropathy in, uh, in, older, in older folks. And our models, mostly yeast worms and, and and patient-derived fibroblasts suggested that this drug and class of drugs um, more widely could be beneficial for this rare metabolic syndrome. And no one had really connected the two before. Um, but the great advantage of doing repurposing, whether it was rational or serendipitous or, or, uh, or, or, or you know, basically uh, in a way where you, you left yourself open to these connections, um, the next step is really clear. You, you can basically skip any kind of rodent toxicity study, because that was done to get this molecule proof for its first indication. You can, if you want to, skip even the mouse validation study. If in the case we're talking about, it's an enzyme deficiency, and we could measure that enzyme really clearly in human fibroblasts. And so, um, you, know, you know, was that basically good enough uh, versus a mouse. And in fact, the mouse wasn't even available to us because in this case, in this rare metabolic disease, you can't make a viable mouse model. It dies too young. It doesn't survive long enough for you to sort of test it. 
Um, so that makes your case, it makes your path even faster because then you, you can basically say, well, this drug's already been approved, so I can skip all those toxicity and, and maybe even rodent efficacy studies and go straight to human. Um, and how would you do that? Uh, in the United States, well, it, you have to ask, well, was this uh, approved in the United States? This was not, and so you have to go down what's called expanded access or compassionate use or, or single patient IND, and that's what we did. Um, so we made the discoveries in the lab, you know, at the end of 2018. Over the course of 2019, we kind of got the FDA clearance um, and, you know, did some other stuff like uh, not scientific at all, just stuff like getting the drug into the country and then figuring out who, how to import it and what logistics company to use, stuff that had nothing at all to do with the, the you know, or, or IRB, waiting for an IRB, you know, to be approved. You know, that was what took, you know, all that waiting, the administrative waiting took longer than the actual scientific discoveries because we were using worms and flies and, and human uh, fibroblasts, which grow really fast. So, yeah, so we kind of ended up dosing about a, uh, the first dose into our into our single patient, first patient, um, about a year after, year, 15 months after we actually made the, the laboratory discoveries. And again, that waiting period was just sort of jumping through administrative hoops. If we could shrink those down, that process would be, you know, let's say three to six months after your laboratory confirmation. And that's kind of what I think could happen in the best case scenario. Again, best case scenario. But I know, I know, Sanath, you've, you've got Sanath has some experience. It sounds like he was alluding to uh, also with with this we're kind of repurposing. Although I think he actually did it in a rational way and identified a substance um, based on kind of making connections in the literature. And and I know that you had to go through some hoops as well. But was my was that timeline I just described and the steps comparable? Pretty much. Pretty much. I, I just didn't have the importing process there. So you, you had to go through one extra layer. Um, but with respect to the expanded access, IRB, and, 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 and COVID happened. So it was even more fun. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a comparable timeline. And I think the, the what people don't realize or understand is, is that during this time, these kids are actually de like um, degrading in their health, right? They're not, they're not stable um, and so this is a time that is lost and lost forever um, and so whatever we can uh, do as a community and, and the government could do um, I think would, for, for these kids they're, they're, we need to have a special path but that's a separate conversation. And I think it's also you know if we talk about the whole system it can go really fast just this weekend you know President Trump got a compassionate use study okayed overnight. Now, he has a few more resources than you do, Smith. He knows a few more people. Um, he's got a whole team at Walter Reed, you know, pushing that through. That's what a small foundation does not have. And that's the systemic fix that I, I'm puzzling around. How do we get there? What's, what's different is the mutation, the disorder, the symptomatology, and the available agents. Absolutely. Yeah. Accessibility is the, the number one issue here. In addition to today's Raising Rare episode, we are also featuring Ethan Perlstein on the Improbable Developments podcast. We will talk more about his career path and how he got interested in this exciting field. If you haven't listened to Improbable Developments yet, we think you should. 
Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. (laughs) 